Thank you, KDNK listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is it teaching us? My guest today is Stu Tabin, a retired attorney and financial analyst. He's always been fascinated by current events and politics, and for the last several years, Stu, was Stu has co-moderated U.S. foreign policy discussion series at the Aspen Institute, where he and I met. Stu and his wife have three grown children, and they split their time between New York and Woody Creek. Thanks for joining us, Stu. Thank you for having me, Dan. Um, Stu, I was particularly excited to have you on because, as I mentioned, uh, you know, you've co-moderated uh, shows, and I think you just have a a unique ability to be quite unbiased as we've discussed these issues. And I don't know if that's because you're a financial analyst or not, but uh, I, I, I truly <laughs> value it. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for the compliment. And thanks for being willing to share your time and expertise with me and the KDNK listeners. Um, Pleasure. You know, to be honest, it's a little daunting to delve into this topic, as I see it as one of the more complicated foreign policy issues that I am aware of. And to be clear, I think it's much more than just the recent war, although clearly this war is yet another catastrophe in the conflict. I think it goes without saying that Hamas's attack on Israel was horrific, barbaric, and indefensible. And the subsequent humanitarian crisis stemming from Israel's response is also indefensible. We know that the U.S. has been a long and unwavering and unequivocal supporter of Israel, but has also supported what is referred to as a two-state solution in the past, where both Israel and Palestine has sovereign territory, as was mandated by the 1947 UN Partition Plan. Some would argue that the window for such a solution is closed, but whether it's true or not, it now seems impossible for the status quo to continue. Recently, we've seen unrest globally and in the U.S. regarding the atrocities occurring both in Gaza and in Israel. We have Republican Lindsey Graham placing all blame on, quote, all blame on Hamas, unquote, and President Biden's press secretary stating, quote, there are not two sides, unquote, to this issue, also implying that Hamas deserves all the blame. But we also have protesters dismissing the sheer brutality of Hamas's attack as if to say no military response is justified. I believe that this unrest is coming from the fact that both Israel and Hamas have committed indefensible acts, but really understanding each of the two perspectives, let alone the many perspectives of the many other players, is not easy, and attempting to keep score at this point is simply futile. So let's dig into this and try and learn as much as we can. <clears throat> Stu, it's been said that this, 19, that this is a 19th century idealism driving a 20th century conflict in a 21st century world. Would you mind providing some context for our listeners and briefly summarize how Israel and Palestinians are in the tragic mess that they're in right now in whatever way you can? Sure. Uh, well, I'm not going to go back the several thousand sure. years that this discussion would really warrant, but I think you could pretty much start to date the current conflict to the uh, Balfour Declaration that the British promulgated in 1917 which called for the creation of a Jewish state in the land of, in, on land where Arabs and Jews lived for thousands of years, the majority of which were Arabs or Druze, and there were always Jews in the land that we call uh, Palestine. Uh, 
but it culminated in the partition plan that you mentioned, promulgated by the UN in 1947, in which the UN proposed the partition of that land into two contiguous states. The surrounding Arab states immediately objected and launched a war that Israel successfully defended. Uh, and that state of affairs pretty much maintained until 1967, when several Arab countries launched the six day, what became known as the Six-Day War. Uh, Israel successfully defended itself, both in its originally configured statehood territory and also annexed the west land to the west bank of the Jordan River. And I think that's probably the greatest source of the continuing conflict between Arabs and Israelis and, and Arab states in the state of Israel and Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, the maintenance and governance of the West Bank has been a tragedy from the point of view of Palestinians. And in my own view, it's been a tragedy as well, because uh, the conduct of settlers uh, on the West Bank has been abhorrent and has stifled any real effective mechanism to create a two-state solution that I think most people would say is both desired and necessary. Uh, the 1973 war, the several in, what were called intifadas, conflicts, uprisings in the West Bank and in Gaza uh, have le eventually led to the uh, abandonment of Gaza by uh, unilateral abandonment of Gaza by the Israeli government in 2005. And basically, the Gazan community got what it wanted, which was freedom. And then in 2007, kicked out the Palestinian Authority and elected Hamas to lead it. And I think it's really, by any rational inclusion, uh, it's been a disaster for the Palestinians living in Gaza. Hamas has received over a billion dollars of foreign aid and has devoted most of that not to better the lives of the people in Gaza, but rather to arm itself for an existential conflict against Israel. Israel hasn't helped itself because, as I said earlier, it has mistreated Palestinians in the West Bank and has propped up the Palestinian Authority merely to make quiescent the Palestinians who live in the West Bank. So it's it's a conflict that continues and will continue until there is the political will, at least in Israel, to deal realistically and effectively with the Palestinian Authority to create the conditions necessary for a two-state solution. Having said that, as you correctly pointed out, the, the, the attack on October 7th was horrific and whether one thinks that the Israelis deserved it or didn't deserve it, I think it's absolutely necessary and incumbent on all of us to recognize that it was that there are no circumstances where one can justify beheading children, raping women, killing old people, killing children, kidnapping people. It's just it's it's not part of what we think of as humanity, whether you think that it's one thinks that it's uh, the result of something for which Israel bears, bears responsibility. So that's where we are. Thanks, Stu.
And that was a, a, a great, concise history. My, my readings indicate that there have been some, in addition to the, the changes, there's been some clear shifts in mindsets uh, with either side in it. And you, you talked about in 2007 when essentially Hamas took control over Gaza. Um, but in slightly prior to that, around the 2000s, it seems like the Israeli mindset, or I, I don't know if I should say Israeli or Israel's um, as a government, really changed to um, to change the I, the way I understand it. The second infantada really ch- changed their their mindset, and then when Hamas uh, took power, the the chance or, or the uh, the likelihood of a two state solution really changed at that point. So there was some progress leading up to that. But that's when things, uh, that's when negotiations seem to go south, and they've been continuing to go south ever since. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, there there have been probably half a dozen opportunities, proposals for a two-state solution that, uh, for various reasons that I don't want to characterize with a value, uh, the people governing the Palestinian people chose to uh, decline. Um, you are correct that Israel abandoned its governance over Hamas when it became untenable, uh, and whether to protect, in its view, to protect itself, or if you take a harsher view of the Israeli government to oppress the Palestinian people, there had there were decades where Palestinians living in Gaza would launch incursions into Israel, and Israel would uh, counterattack, usually with greater force than originally attacked it. Uh, and when Hamas took over, um, look, Hamas is, if you look at the Hamas, I won't call it a constitution, but a statement of purpose, it's to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have made some mollifying statements that may have lulled Israel into a false sense of security. They made those statements in the last couple of years, but it's pretty clear that Hamas's reason for being is to destroy Israel and, as they like to chant, make Palestinian free from the river to the sea. And that would entail eradicating the state of Israel. Um, And so, yes, there have been proposals to create a two-state solution, but it's it's never been in Hamas's interest to have that happen. And there are other people who support Hamas, like Iran, who have an existential conflict with Israel, and it's in Iran's interest not to see that happen. So that's... I want to get maybe a little bit later. I want to get into uh, some of the things you just mentioned, um, but I also want to get your opinion because I know that that's all it can be. Is what's your sense of the average Israeli or the average Palestinian? How do you think they feel about this conflict? Is there a sense that they're a hundred percent behind their government or not, or is is there a strong disconnect in your in your opinion? 
Great question, Ben. Uh, let's start with Israel. Israel is about as riven a society as the United States is at the moment. There is no majority government in Israel that embodies one specific point of view. You have to cobble together a, a, a coalition in the Knesset, the Israeli legislature, in order to govern. And in the current configuration, this is the most right-wing nationalistic government the state of Israel has ever had. And I think that's part of the issue here. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, but there are nationalists who are so pro-settler that they would never contemplate a two-state solution. In fact, their point of view is they would kick every Arab out of the country. Of Israel. Um, so Israel is as divided as the United States is politically right now. I would say there are probably, it's close to half and half that people would still consider a two-state solution, although that has been declining because there hasn't really been an interlocutor with which the government of Israel can negotiate. And certainly Hamas has continued to make it difficult for that to happen. The PA is sclerotic. The Palestinian Authority, which governs uh, the West Bank, is sclerotic and has not better the lives of people in the West Bank, but the government of Israel bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for that because it has encouraged settlement. It has passed laws to make it difficult for Palestinians in the West Bank to work, to own land. Uh, it's just been, this government in Israel has been a disaster for the two-state solution, even though the people of Israel are reasonably, when I say reasonably, close to 50-50 is the division between those who want to see a two-state solution and those who don't. In Gaza, I think there, were, there, had, there had been people who were not aligned with Hamas. Uh, but once this conflict, this immediate conflict, October 7th and after began, uh, people in Israel lined up behind the government, even though they hold Net, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu responsible for this mess. But, and I'm sure people in Gaza have been much more in support of Hamas as Israel counterattacks and inflicts damage on innocent people and land and buildings and does what it's doing to try to protect itself. So I think originally there were people who were less supportive of their respective governments, but now it's now it's you know all 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 hands on deck to try to support their their respective governments against the the enemy. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's where the the you've you've touched on this, but here you have Palestinians um, their their governing body um, really both both Hamas and uh, the Palestinian Authority saying that Israel has no right to exist, but you have Palestinians who are essentially second-class citizens in Israel and in, in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, and they feel captive. My, my impression is they feel captive uh, by, by all three, by the Palestinian Authority, by Hamas in Israel. Uh, they believe the organizations that are governing them are, are corrupt. Um, and so, and so they're, 
I think both entities sort of feel like a mouse trapped in, or, or any kind of animal trapped in. They don't know what else to do but to fight. Um, I, I, well, to that end, I, I think one of the issues that is driving the current conflict, as, as you know, uh, Israel signed cooperation agreements with uh, the UAE and a number of other states in the Persian Gulf. And so relations between Israeli and Arab countries have begun to warm, and Israel was closing in on an agreement with Saudi Arabia to relax historical enmity and, and kind of enter into trade agreements and, and technology sharing and, and the opportunity for Israel to be a, a more welcomed member in, in its geographic area. And that was threatening to a lot of people, and particularly Hamas, who felt like the Palestinian cause was becoming forgotten. And they certainly stuck their hand up and showed the world that it's still an issue. It's, we probably should also point out that you mentioned in your introductory comments that the Gazans got what they wanted when they elected Hamas, but in their defense, they haven't had elections to, since 2006. So it's not like they, they really had a voice in how things have progressed. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, Hamas never held elections. And, you know, Israel wanted nothing to do with Gaza after 2005. Um, It it allowed aid in, it it, it funneled energy and resources to Gaza and hoped that it would eventually grow economically and politically, but that clearly has not happened. Did the same thing on the West Bank, but it infected the West Bank. That's my word, and that is a value word. Infected the West Bank with settlement activity that made it makes it and made it extraordinarily difficult for the Palestinian Authority to um, help better the society for Palestinians living on the West Bank. And the current Israeli government bears a tremendous amount of blame and responsibility for that. Yeah, what a mess. I, I, my sense is in talking to, uh, you know, my peers is that there, there isn't a great understanding of that, that difference between the West Bank and Gaza and how it's, it's not like there is a Palestine under one that's unified. Um, so it's, it's just complicated to say the least. Um, so I touched on a few, uh, different American perspectives that have been offered in the past, Senator Lindsey Graham and, and, um, President Biden's press secretary. Um, but what have you seen in Washington as this war continues, uh, in terms of perspectives and an evolution of perspectives? Uh, well, Washington, I think President Biden has been a staunch Friend and friend to and supporter of Israel. Having said that, I think he's also in favor of a two-state solution. I think there is a there have been basically most of the presidents in the 21st century have supported a two-state solution to varying degrees, and yet it's very hard for Washington to. 
affect the uh, you can't we can't dictate to Israel how they should be thinking about a two-state solution. We ha- we do have some influence, but I think the warmth or coldness of relations between the people who have led administrations in Washington and Netanyahu in Israel really dictate how much uh, how those perspectives differ. So, I mean, for example, President Obama and President Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, have had had really frosty relations. Uh, and I think if you listen to Obama, he would say that Israel bears responsibility for what happened on October 7th. I think that's a, a view not shared by the Biden administration. I think if you ask the, the people in the Biden administration, they would tell you that they support a two-state solution. They have been trying to influence the Netanyahu government to be more realistic. But I think the Netanyahu government bears tremendous responsibility for this because they have, uh, to use a metaphor, they've taken their eye off the ball. And Washington, it doesn't matter what Washington thinks, basically. Uh, I think people in Washington are, are supportive of most people in Washington are supportive of Israel. Yeah, you have people like uh, Rashida Tlaib, who is not, to say the least, but I think she's a real represents a real minority. Uh, I do think you have some America firsters and, and Trump supporters in Congress who, um, while they support Israel, have re- are really conflicted about whether to fund aid to Israel in this case because they're conflicted about funding anything outside of the United States. But I think that for the most part, Washington's ardor to try to effectuate a two-state solution hasn't, hasn't really changed. It's just in modest degree. And the Biden administration certainly supports Israel to a, to a much greater extent than the Obama administration did. And the Trump administration did... Um, it went out of its way to cultivate Israel, but I don't think made great strides in pushing Israel toward recognizing the need for a two-state solution. I think the Biden administration has probably tried to do that more than previous administrations in this century. So I think one of the reasons this the the question of where does Washington stand is relevant. And I don't know if I'm I'm pushing back or just asking asking for clarity, but you said there's only so much we can dictate to for Israel uh, in terms of pursuing a two state solution. But certainly, given our aid and support, isn't there room for us to dictate more than we have? Uh, I would say you would one would think that would be the case, but. I think it's very difficult for any president to risk alienating the the voting block of Jewish Americans who would object strenuously to any reduction in monetary aid or or political support for Israel. So nobody wants to risk that. That's like asking somebody to reform Social Security in the United States. You lose a lot of votes very quickly. I think that's the reason. Okay. But yet, uh, when you and I talked uh, earlier, 
you you've witnessed some evolution of that where in the past it's been pretty rock solid support of Israel but but uh is it fair to, for me to characterize what you said is some of that support may be eroding or just positions are are evolving can you speak to that I don't I don't think I don't I don't think Dan I don't think it's eroding I think it's okay. uh, I, when I when, and when you say evolving I think you have to also when you think, when, when one is thinking about this whole mess one has to look at what's going on internally in Israel. And, and I keep coming back to blaming the current Net, Net, Netanyahu government. Mm-hmm. So Netanyahu was much more of a centrist when he was first elected. But as his support eroded, he had to cobble together a coalition with the most far-right parties that had seats in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And so that pushed him way to the right and tested the and the, and the policies that they enacted both reduced the focus of Israel on a potential flare up from Gaza and also made more distant any thought of being able to put into place a two state solution. Netanyahu, his strategy as I see it was to keep Palestinians on the West Bank as quiet as possible, to keep Gaza on the on the back burner, and I think Hamas played into that intentionally to try to throw Israel off guard. And the state of Israel, or the Netanyahu government, tried to pass reforms uh, of the judiciary that would have taken away the judiciary's oversight over government decisions. And there have been demonstrations in Israel that have, uh, of a size that have never taken place before. It's really riven Israeli society and taken Israel's defense mechanisms off, off uh, thrown their focus away from where they should have been maintained. And the United States is on the outside of all of that, looking in and trying to create conditions for a two-state solution, but Israel internally is moving away from that because of the configuration of the current Netanyahu government. Instead, the focus has been, as I mentioned earlier, to try to put in place agreements between Israel on the one hand and various Arab states on the other to try to create a more peaceful um, Middle East that would enable the United States, for example, to turn its attention more to its ongoing relations or conflict with China. I know that's getting a little far afield, but I think you have to start by looking at how it's not just the United States that has changed to whatever degree it's changed internally in its view toward Israel, because that's really in large part driven by what's going on internally within Israel itself. As it's moved more and more to the right and taken its eye off the ball of, of, of dealing with the true interests of the Palestinian populations in both the West Bank and Gaza, in favor of moving toward a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia, for example. So am I understanding correctly? So I, I was going to ask about, you know, couldn't, and this isn't, it really isn't me taking sides. It's really how to um, create greater peace, I guess. And so I was going to offer that, couldn't the United States more strongly discourage uh, the expansion of settlements but what I'm hearing you say is 
perhaps a more um, quiet, I don't know what the right term is, um, but sort of behind the scenes uh, support of peace is trying to build greater coalitions between Israeli and, and, the, and, the, and the Arab world around it. I think one of the conditions that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the leader of Saudi Arabia, uh, would have imposed on any deal between Israel and Saudi would have been to take concrete steps and a time and put in place a timeline for a two-state solution. And that's one of the you know, that that and and for uh, as part of that for the Biden administration to support a two-state solution as a way of of demanding from the Netanyahu government that they get off of this extreme right-wing. Um, platform that they have, that this particular coalition has employed to try to keep the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank from being able to uh, better the the lot for the Palestinians who are living there. Okay. Uh, Let me pause for a second and say it's it's the bottom of the hour and you're listening to the Meet in the Middle show on KDNK, Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest is Stu Tabin. Today's show is Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is it teaching us? Um, so, Stu, just a moment ago, you you mentioned China, and that's another thing that we've talked about um, previously. And um, what just blows my mind with just how many different players are involved in this particular conflict. I, I, I guess I shouldn't. That's that's what uh, how the the world works, but. Can you speak to, or maybe perhaps put this conflict in context with some other pretty large players? You mentioned Iran and China, but also Russia. Uh, I know that's a a broad question, but oh no, it's a very it, it it's actually it's all connected. The knee bones connected to the thigh bone. Okay, um, look, I personally believe that Iran was behind what took place on October seventh that it is existential for Iran to prevent Israel entering into agreements of cooperation with Arab states, because historically, at least since the Iranian revolution in 1979, there have been blocks of power between the Shiite states, which are predominantly Iran, parts of Iraq and Syria on the one hand, and, and um, the Sunni states, which are really led by Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE. And those power blocks have vied for influence in that area. And Iran has proxies throughout the Middle East that have fomented anti-Saudi and anti-Israel violence. Uh, Hezbollah exists in Lebanon right on the northern border with Israel and is threatening to expand the conflict. Hezbollah is an Iran proxy. Hamas is an Iran proxy, even though it started out as a Sunni uh, offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. But they derive almost all of their support from Iran. And you have Iran itself, which has this ongoing existential conflict with Israel. So Iran benefits as a result of October 7th, or at least in the short term it does. Russia benefits as a result of October 7th because 
it takes the eye of the United States Congress off the ball of Ukraine. And if, we, if you have to have, if you have an in, a, a finite pot of money uh, that the United States Congress can um, appropriate, it's going to go first to Israel and second to, uh, to, to Ukraine. So Putin is having a grand time right now watching uh, what he thinks is U.S. congressional support for Ukraine diminish as a result of what took place on October 7th. China has aligned itself with uh, Russia in this case and has not condemned what took place in Israel on October 7th. Uh, and I think part of that is out of brotherhood with Russia and Iran on the one hand and just anti-Western feeling and China on the other. Uh, and that's part of a greater competition between East and West. And China sees itself as a world player and the West in decline, according to Xi Jinping, and has gone out of its way to align itself with Russia and against the United States and sees its, and, and, and I think sees itself in a long-term conflict with the U.S. And so anything... Any any conflict or any any area where the U.S. takes one side, China finds itself on the other. I I don't I don't disagree with anything you said, but how do you square that with China's efforts to to try and be the peacekeeper between not the peacekeeper but uh, the facilitator, if you will, the negotiator between Israel and Saudi Arabia? It seemed like that was, uh, you know, one of the ways they wanted to. Um, further their presence as a as a, a global leader. I, and I, you you are absolutely correct. And the U.S. did not object to that at all. In fact, the U.S. supported that. I just think China has not spoken up on behalf of they haven't condemned a terrorist attack, and that's uh, puts it on the side uh, on a side with Russia and Iran right now. And I'm not sure that's where China ultimately thinks it ought to be, but that's where it is. Right. I see. Um, and do you have a sense, clearly Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, all are players in this. Um, do you have a sense that, are they actively involved? Do they have, obviously they have a stake in the game, but are they willing to um, play their cards or how, how do they fit in? I think they fit in. Um, their populations are restive right now. Uh, I think there are, there's, they are very worried that the Arab population, local Arab populations will uh create conditions that are difficult for the governing entities right now. I think, you know, there, there's always a, there is tremendous unrest in those countries in, in support of uh, the, Palestine, the Palestinian cause that from ebbs and flows, but now it's coming to the fore. And I think the states are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're saying that they want peace. They're saying that they want an immediate ceasefire. But I think they are more concerned internally with keeping their populations quiet. Mm -hmm. That, except for states like Syria, which are Russian and Iran proxies right now, and through which 
um, you know, there have been bombs lobbed into Israel from the Syrian uh, side of things, not controlled necessarily by the Syrian government, but not prevented by it either. Same thing with Lebanon through the Iranian proxy of Hezbollah. Anything else? I, I wanted to uh, pull back maybe and, and, and take the, I mean, granted, when we talk about these other, other nations, we're talking a 30,000-foot view, but I want to go back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and look at that from sort of a 30,000-foot view. But is there anything else about these other players um, that you think is relevant to this discussion that you want to t- touch on? Other players in the area or China, Russia, Iran? All the above or any of them. I mean, I think the real issue is Iran. I, 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 this, this is um, Iran has used proxies from Yemen, Lebanon, and Gaza to attack Israel. And I think this is Iran will go to great length, and Russia is supporting Iran in this. Iran will go to great lengths to prevent a peace initiative between Israel and the Arab states, particularly Saudi Arabia. They feel encircled. They will feel they are incredibly threatened by that. Uh, and the other states, you know, the, the local states, are always going to be on the side of the Palestinians. And they're always going to speak up. I don't think they are that any of them is inclined to get involved militarily. First, they don't have the resources. Second, I, I think that would threaten other relationships that they have that they value, particularly with the U.S. And meanwhile, I think to your point, Russia, I think, just loves the instability. Um, they just love the instability. That's exactly, that's the best way to put it. They, they are, this is exactly what they're fomenting in, in, in other places in the world. Anything to uh, draw resources of the United States and the West away from uh, Ukraine and sub-Saharan Africa where they're trying to assert influence. And, and China is, a try, is trying to assert influence as well. Maybe this is there is one thing I wanted to. There is one thing I wanted to mention. Sure. I, I think one of the you know people talk about the two-state solution now being dead. I actually think that when this is this current conflict is all said and done, there's probably going to be an increased chance of a two-state solution, not a decreased chance. And I think the reason is that I don't think. Benjamin Netanyahu has a political future after this is over. I think he's going to be voted out. And I think people are going to realize that they will be in a continuing spiral of violence until the rights of the Palestinians, particularly in the West Bank, uh, are, are recognized and, and enabled to a much greater extent than they are now. And I think internationally, the U.S. and the other Arab states are going to be, it may be five years, it may be 10 years, but I think there is going to be a, a, a more concerted effort to come to terms with Israel's right to exist in exchange for 
the recognition of a, of a contiguous state of Palestine. That's what I think is going to happen. It's not going to happen immediately after because obviously as this continues and the world looks on in horror for, for what's happening in both sides, um, you know, it's, 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 it's getting worse before it's going to get better. Yeah, clearly um, it's gotten worse. And, and I don't, the optimist in me wants to believe you that this will actually get us closer <laughs> to a state, two state solution. Um, I'm not, as informed as you are to have the confidence, but um, I think... I'm not. No, no. I, 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 I look. I, I, the optimist in me wants to see that happen, but I do see that there is a a possibility that it will be more likely than not. Because I think what's going to happen is I, I think within Israel there is going to be a turn away from the craziness in the current Israeli governmental coalition. I think, I think there's more that's that's necessary though, and I think this is uh, this is a good segue into where I wanted to go. And I'm gonna I'm gonna draw an analogy that may or may not be appropriate, but I think Hamas, like other terrorist organizations, it's essentially built on Palestinian despair, um, and I liken it to gun violence in the United States because guns are clearly a problem, um, just like global terrorism. Uh, but unless the despair or the mental health or w- whatever is driving it um, at the root of these acts is addressed, the violence is going to continue and history will repeat itself. Is that, is that a fair analogy? And do you agree with that? I, I think the, uh, I, 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 I'm not as informed as you may be, but I, I don't know. Look, I, I, I don't want to get into a gun discussion, <laughs> I guess, where I come out. But yeah. I think one of the things that is, Israel is doing right now, so they have surrounded northern Gaza, and they're going to root out Hamas to a point where Hamas no longer will be able to wage the kind of conflict that it has been able to wage, certainly to prevent it, to prevent another October 7th from happening. That is what, I'm not saying that's going to be effective, but that is what Israel's current game plan is. Uh, You know, Hamas maintains uh, several hundred miles of tunnels under Gaza right now. Those are going to be rooted out. And whether that ends up eradicating Hamas, I can't tell you, but that's certainly where Israel is. That's that's where the Israeli government mindset is right now. And they're going to do it as uh, with as much care towards civilians as is possible. That's probably not a lot. I'll gra- I, I, I think we all have to concede that. But that's their goal is not to kill, unlike Hamas, their goal is not intentionally to kill Palestinian civilians. But there, there is a, a gross humanitarian uh, disaster taking place right now until Israel achieves what it thinks its war aims are. But clearly, having, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you please, go ahead. But clearly Israel can't believe that, even if it were possible to eradicate Hamas, that that is going to that is going to satiate 
Palestinians um, that there, that this drive and, and that was kind of the point of my my comment is that they're, they're in a state of despair um, and I think Palestinians might argue that they've they've tried it with a gun they've tried it with a pen and nothing has worked and their quality of life is abysmal and only decreasing and getting rid of Hamas will you know it's the whack-a-mole game um, another terrorist organization will come in and and convince the Palestinian peace the people that they're worth a shot um, so isn't doesn't isn't it in Israel's best interest to address that despair in addition to getting rid of Hamas cuz I think we could all Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely and that's why I, that's why I said before I think there is in the intermediate or slightly longer term a greater chance of a two-state solution because I think this is a this is a wake-up call for the citizens of Israel that the path that, the, that a series of Israeli governments has been pursuing for the last several decades has not worked, and that it's going to have to take a, choose a different path. And I think it clearly has to, the government, the Israeli government clearly has to come to grips with the fact that what you just said that unless somebody is going to be willing to better the lives of Palestinians living in both Gaza and the West Bank, this cycle of violence and conflict is just going to continue. So I think Hamas is actually going to, I, look, I, and maybe it's the optimist in me, maybe I'm being self-delusional, but what Hamas did is actually going to lead to what, it probably didn't want to achieve, which is a possibility of an Israel living contiguously with a prosper a, a chance for a prosperous Palestinian, Palestinian state. Yeah, I would concur with that. Um, I think what someone else said this, not me, but um, when these when these injustices and traumas uh, on both sides in this case um, go unresolved and, and unrecognized, then um, then they're just going to resurface. And so it sounds like we're... Yeah, they don't, they don't go away. It's like a, it's a festering wound. And I think one of, the, one of the almost criminal pieces of negligence that the Netanyahu government has been guilty of is thinking that they have done enough just to keep Palestinian rage quiet. And this, as I said earlier, it's a wake-up call. They've blown it. They have failed in the worst possible way. I mean, this would be akin to somebody on, a, on the border of the United States killing 30,000 Americans. That's the rough um, rough proportions of population. Hmm. That's interesting perspective. And you could imagine how the, by the way, you could imagine how the United States would respond in that kind of scenario. 
I mean, you, you saw how we responded when 3,000 people were killed in, on 9-11. Imagine if 30,000 were killed. It's horrific, but it's also, it would hopefully make some more sober minds in the U.S. government understand that, how did we get here? What did we do that created these conditions? And I think there are people in Israel currently making those same calculations and, and, and finally beginning to realize that conflict and oppression isn't going to, you can't, you can't keep the lid on the pressure cooker constantly on. The cost is too great. You mentioned 9-11, and I just, I think it's important to, to equalize those statistics. I, I think Biden said that um, the attack on Israel was the equivalent of 15 9-11s. That might be the statistic you were referencing. But in terms yeah. of, a, of a ratio of population, Israel's response in Gaza was something in the magnitude of 400 9-11s. So no matter how you look at it, this is uh, significant, but I think it's important to recognize kind of how both sides are going to perceive it. Let me, let me push back on you a little. I would say that the response to 9-11 was 10 years of war in, uh, in Iraq that cost well over several trillion dollars. So I don't know whether it's 400 times 9-11, but I think it, it cost us a lot in blood and treasure that, was, that result, resulted in minimal, if any, success. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think one of the one of the lessons I take away from this conflict and our conversation, um, I mean, there, there's there's a lot. Clearly, Israel wants and deserves to be safe and secure. Palestinians also want to want and deserve to be safe and secure and to have the freedom of self determination, um, which I think we've said you know they don't have. Um, do you agree that holding both of these narratives is essential to, uh, to quote my show, to meet in the middle and to, and to find some form of peace? Is that a fair goal? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I, I do think it's important to remember that Israel was not preventing elections in Gaza. Israel wasn't preventing elections in the West Bank. However, Israel was grossly influencing the election, the, the, the situation in the West Bank in particular by building settlements in areas that would be part of a contiguous Palestinian state. But I absolutely agree with your point that each of them, each group of people deserves to live in peace and dignity in, in that area. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the purpose of the show is to explore different perspectives. And I think you're absolutely right that it's not Israel's fault that Hamas has not held an election since 2006. But I also think that Israel's governance of the West Bank has, for for many decades, really hasn't been guided by a desire for a two-state solution and therefore um, hasn't uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Certainly hasn't facilitated uh, Palestinians having self-determination. 
have been moments. You have to remember there have been moments. And uh, Ehud Barak offered a plan to Yasser Arafat that was 99% of what Palestinians wanted, and Arafat turned it down. So there have been moments, there haven't been enough moments, and there may be moments in the future, but yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think in my introduction, I, I made the comment that trying to keep score is futile now, and, and I don't disagree with what you just said, but there's been enough time that's passed. I mean, heck, the average age of a Palestinian, I think, is like in their mid-20s, so they may not have even been born when those um, offers were on the table. And so now, as hard as it is, and it's easy for me to say safe in Colorado, that we have to deal with the situation now and and hold those two narratives, is, is my opinion. I agree. Totally. Um, I'm, I'm certainly oversimplifying it by saying that is the lesson, but what about from your perspective? Is there anything else you've learned either about this conflict or through this conflict about other uh, foreign policy issues, um, either in recent weeks or or recent years? Yeah, I think that this is one, to me, one more example of the um, of how <laughs> tribal the world can be sometimes. The Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916 was drawn up by a Frenchman and an Englishman, and they basically created the map of the current Middle East. Hmm. And it wasn't based on anything that had to do with what people lived there, what kinds, what religions lived there, and what, um, what, there weren't nationalities then, but what groups lived there. And so you, you create conditions for conflict, and it, you just see the same theme playing out over and over again. And when you don't recognize the rights of indigenous peoples, you get conflict. Whether it's the Kurds in Iraq and Syria, whether it's the Palestinians in the Middle East, it's just whether it's every nationality or religious group in the Balkans, I mean, it just, or what's going on in Africa, you just have to recognize the rights of various different groups of people. And if you can do it peaceably, peacefully, it's fabulous. It's very hard to do. It's just another example of how when you try to create uh, states for people, when you try to move people off land, when you try to um, compensate for changes that are made to people's living conditions, it can be a disaster. And has been. Thank you for that. I think, uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, um, the, the big lesson I've taken away is, is the driver of such conflict and this despair and the trauma that keeps um, reemerging this conflict can seem so surreal to Americans. It's halfway across the globe. It's almost impossible to, to wrap your head around it. But I think those lessons of addressing despair uh, and trauma and, and 
acknowledging them and facing them can help us get through uh, a lot of challenges. Um, so I think there's a, a lot we can learn, and, and hopefully we can be supportive of uh, everyone in that region who is uh, just suffering beyond belief right now. Um, Amen. Stu, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, and uh, maybe one quick last question along that note of where I was going. Um, anything in particular give you hope these days, given all these challenges and conflicts? Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, people continue to make babies. That gives me hope. <laughs> okay. Um, that's true. That's true. And I think we are, um, I think, I think there's a lot of people out there paying attention and trying to learn as the world evolves. Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was being only half facetious. I agree with you. I think, look, that people, the more informed they are and the more they understand these issues and, and the roots of these problems, the better we will all be. So I think your show is a wonderful attempt to do that. And uh, I really appreciate your having me on it. You bet. Well, I'm grateful and uh, it keeps me off the streets, so I'll keep doing it. And uh, <laughs> Keep it up. Thanks for joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show was Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is it teaching us? I'm Dan Richardson. Thank you for listening to KDNK and the Meet in the Middle show, and we'll see you in a month. Thanks, Stu. Thank you, Dan. Take care.